What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in word, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome, I'm your host Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. You are in good company this morning. This is The Art of Living, finding the sweetness in life through education. I am delighted to be joined by a friend, Dr. Eric Davis. Dr. Eric Davis is the former provost of academics at University of Fraser Valley and is now the special advisor to the president. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, we live in a world with many challenges in you know, in, in a world where 30 years of neoliberalism has meant dismantling of many uh, safety nets and social instruments that had been built through the great struggle. We face now a world that seems to be at, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of uh, many incursions of war. What's the role of education in creating a world that not only allow us the opportunity to imagine what has yet to be imagined, but also to put in practice new ways of co-creating the world we want to see. Well, education is crucial to imagining a different world uh, or several possible futures. Primarily, I suppose, because education is, when it's done well, um, transformative. Uh, it transforms the students, the learners who experience it. It transforms uh, their teachers uh, along with them. It transforms the communities to which the students belong and in which the universities and other educational institutions reside. Um, and uh, with without that transformative role, education loses so much of its value. It can only be that way if it, if it places learning and learners at the center of the experience. If it's, if it's learner-centered, if it's community-engaged and community-relevant um, and re responsive and responsible to the local communities it serves, especially the Indigenous communities it serves, um, if it's does all of that, if it's responsive and responsible to community, if it's learner-centered, um, then I think um, it can play that kind of transformative role and, and lead both to the imagination of different possible futures, but also to the creation of those different futures. 
It's so wonderful that you bring out the not only the importance of responsiveness, you know, in among indigenous people we speak about being responsible as both the ability to respond but also the ability to remember um our connection to our communities, our connection to our relations. Um, can we talk a little bit about how how do you see that level of responsiveness being affected or put in place within academia where we seem to have a tradition of silos, you know, one discipline um, seeing the world in a particular way, whereas others perhaps have a completely different lens? Good question. Uh, the, the ultimate silo is the university itself, traditionally. The university traditionally saw itself as the ivory tower, as uh, as not connected to the surrounding world, not connected to community, not engaged with community. And it was seen as almost essential to the success of a university that it be as disconnected from the world as possible. That, um, plus the, the issues you've just raised about the division of knowledge into separate disciplines, which in effect are monopolies um, of, of different kinds of knowledge um, that uh, create the, the silos that make it, it uh, difficult for uh, not only students, but the people who work in universities to make connections, um, which, you know, again, is, is really what education should be about, is enabling people to make connections between all the disparate things that go on in our society and in our world. To most of us, most of the time, we don't see the connections. Uh, we don't see the connection between a war on the other side of the world and uh, what we buy in our grocery stores or what takes place um, in our schools, uh, etc. But everything is connected. And uh, when universities splinter themselves or divide themselves into these silos or disciplines and, and uh, separate student services from uh, the educational programs and everything is separate, it, it militates against uh, people making those connections and seeing how the world is interconnected and seeing how, to borrow an Indigenous phrase, we are all related. I love that you not only see the connections, but I have been actively um, trying to create those, you know, the, the relational process within the university. Tell me a little bit about your story. How did you find yourself on this path of creating transformative education, creating um, this beautiful space of breaking boundaries and you know collaborating across boundaries? I mean, if I'm really going to make sense of that, I I I should probably go back to my own first experience of education as transformative. And that was when I was 17 years old. I, I graduated from high school in Montreal and went on to post-secondary education. Um, and in my, my first uh, year of post-secondary education, um, I took a course with, that was taught by an Ethiopian man named Maimir Manasamai. Um, he was uh, 
someone who had taken his educational training from Jesuits and then later in Paris at the Sorbonne, and he was the best teacher I ever had. He remains my inspiration for what teaching and education should be. Uh, in his classes, he would pose questions, and uh, we, the students, would propose answers, uh, to which he would reply, yes. And this, in turn, provoked other attempts at, at answers and other questions from either the students or the teacher. Um, and, and that's how the, the class would move on. And it, it's difficult for me to capture how transformative the experience of learning with Professor Manasame was. It felt like my brain came on fire, came alive for the first time. It felt like I had uh, discovered what knowledge really was. I suppose now I would say it, it felt like I discovered what learning really was. In trying to uh, it make sense of what the what his method of education was, um, I, I learned from two other courses uh, that I took, one with somebody else and one with him. One was a philosophy course where we read Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And um, through reading that, I discovered the Socratic method of education, where education is based on dialogue and, and questioning. And it seemed to me that, that that's what Professor Manasseh and I uh, exemplified in his approach. But then in another course uh, I took with him, um, he assigned a reading from a book by Paulo Freire, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, a work which um, I'm sure many of your, your listeners are familiar. Uh, and the reading uh, assigned was chapter two from that book. And in that chapter, Frere opposes the dominant mode of education, which he calls the banking concept uh, of education. Uh, he opposes that to problem-posing education. In the banking mode of education, the teacher treats students as empty containers or receptacles to be filled. So education becomes uh, an act of depositing bits of knowledge in the supposedly empty minds uh, and passive minds of students. The, the, the teacher teaches and the students are taught. Uh, and because students have a passive role imposed on them, they are encouraged to adapt to the world as it is and not intervene in the world as transformers of that world. On the other hand, the problem-posing mode of education is based on a, a dialogue between students and teachers in which they jointly share the role of inquiry. Um, apart from inquiry, um, uh, Frere says individuals can't be truly human. Um, so both the teacher and the student share in the process of teaching and learning, both teach and both learn, and the teacher-student engages with the student-teachers. Um, and I realized that this problem-posing method of education was the one that Professor Manasseh used. Uh, and it was that that made learning come alive and made me fall in love with learning. And it, it's an experience I wish for my children and for all, all students. Um, and when I went on uh, to do graduate work, um, I was a teaching assistant um, when I started my master's. And there I had the opportunity to, to try to put into practice the method of education I had learned from Professor Manasame. And I found that I, I loved it. Uh, I loved being in a, in, a, in a teaching situation. I loved working with other students. Uh, 
was the first social situation in which I felt truly comfortable. Um, and, um, you know, I discovered the, the power of, of questions, students asking questions and using their questions to uh, propel the class forward. The questions that students ask could be the basic material of a class and not any content which I, as a teacher, uh, provided. The next sort of key turning point in, in my educational story is when I arrived at my current institution in 1992 and uh, uh, the University of Fraser Valley, and I discovered two things. Um, one, I, I discovered that universities could and should be community engaged uh, and relevant, and, and that my role as a teacher included community service. This was completely new to me. No university that I had uh, worked in or studied in bef uh, before that really took the surrounding community as seriously as my new institution. And the other thing I discovered when I arrived at UFE, um, for the first time in my life, I felt like a colonizer. Um, I never felt that way before. I had limited experience of, Canada, uh, of Indigenous people in Canada. I grew up in Montreal. Um, aside from uh, going to, as a small child, to um, uh, my parents would take us to, um, uh, uh, I guess they were powwows. I, I thought of them as fairs at the uh, um, Ganesataki, uh, um community across uh, across the river from Montreal, uh, which is a, a Mohawk community. Um, and that was really my limited experience of Indigenous people. Uh, that and seeing homeless Indigenous people in downtown Montreal. Um, and none of that made me think of myself in relation to them, made me think of myself as a colonizer. It wasn't until I arrived in the Fraser Valley and experience the vibrant community and the vibrant culture of the solo people that I, I began to feel like, you know, oh, this beautiful land, the beautiful Fraser Valley, uh, has been taken care of by these people for uh, generations and generations, for thousands, thousands of years. And who am I? How do I relate to these people? How do I relate to this land? Um, and it made me feel like for the first time a colonizer and it made me take that relationship with with the community much more seriously than i had before you know and gradually over time i began uh and quite gradually it took a long time but i became more and more committed to what we call the indigenization of, of the academy or the indigenization of, of universities and all of that meant Ultimately, I'm learning all of my assumptions about what a university education is and what a university should do. Um, and among the things that, that um, becoming engaged with community uh, made me see was that there are boundaries that are artificial. The boundaries between a university and the community uh, is something that doesn't have to exist. We've created it and it should be broken down. But then I also, partly because of my own uh, study, uh, increasingly as I moved through my degrees, I became interested in looking at, um, I, my background was in history, but I was particularly interested in looking at literature from a historical point of view. And so I, I 
I had a very interdisciplinary education the more I moved on in my in my education. And so I was all trying to begin to recognize that disciplines were artificial boundaries, um, that not only the boundary between the university and the community was artificial, but the boundary between history and philosophy and biology and chemistry, et cetera, et cetera. All of these were artificial boundaries and the boundary between student services and academic programming was an artificial boundary. Uh, and I became more and more committed to the idea of a university without walls, the idea of a university where these boundaries were easily navigated uh, by everyone within the university, including students, uh, that crossing those boundaries, that making those boundaries permeable, the making the boundary between the university and the community permeable was um, highly desirable. Um, for the benefit of both the university and the the students and the surrounding communities. Um, and uh, it's that vision, I suppose, that has helped inspire my work as both a teacher and an administrator at university. That's beautiful. You know, I was, as I, as I was listening to your story, I was moved by... Um, how vulnerable it is to be in a position of power, you know, effectively as VP and provost, I, there is so much expectations from you. And I, I hear the heart of your um, commitment to create transformation. And, and I was, I was thinking about how for, um, you know, for the indigenous people, in many ways, education is also an art form. It's a way of being with life. It's a way of being mentored through having people to learn from, to be engaged in community, to be immersed in co-creating along with nature. And so it's this both um, a stewardship, but it's also a, an act of reciprocity. And and I see that in what you're describing, this beautiful journey that brought you to not only see our complicitness, you know, with the colonial process, uh, which yeah. at times has been, you know, uh, we were unconscious of it, right? And so, and then yeah. the way that we can then um, claim our power and in ways that we co-create or start to at least become aware of it. Uh, for the Aztec people, you know, they used to think about education as a process of, um, you know, not only f find your face, which meant, you know, develop your character, develop who you are, uh, find your heart, which meant, you know, being connected to your community, knowing who you belong to, right? And found a foundation, which meant your vocation. What is your vocation? What is it? What is your medicine? What do you bring to the community? And so to me, this idea of making um, boundaries across different disciplines permeable, making this beautiful uh, pollination, uh, not only allows us to create for our students a beautiful nurturing ground, but also a place where new seeds of possibilities can be cultivated. And so in your 
experience of teaching and creating this beautiful space, what has been some of your most cherished uh, findings or, you know, the, the things that have made you feel, yes, this was the right place to be, this was the ideal um, path to follow? There were, I mean, a number of, of beautiful moments, I suppose, in, in my educational career. Um, some of the most moving and, and, and beautiful moments um, involved um, bringing um, indigenous ceremony onto campus. Increasingly at the university, when we host a conference, when we open a new building, when we name a new building, uh, when um, we um, engage in a community building uh, um, initiative with the local Stalo community, um, we will organize the event using Stalo ceremony. Um, and the experience uh, of uh, being a witness to ceremony is unlike anything else in my in my life. And uh, what it does is it makes, I mean, traditionally, a university education is an education of the head and not the heart. But when you experience ceremony, you experience an education and a transformation of both the head and the heart at the same time. Um, and it's that that um, when when you as a as an educator or as a, as a learner can have that kind of educational experience that touches you in the heart as well as in the head, that's really transformative. It changes who you are as a person. You know, if you um, listen to indigenous stories. Um, and if you listen to the stories of survivors of residential school, um, and we've had that opportunity many times at UFB to, to, to create that, that experience for the UFB community to have, have people listen to survivor stories, you can't experience that without being changed in the heart as well as the head. Um, and all of those experiences uh, have been these very transformative moments for me personally, and I think for everyone else who experienced them. Um, because, I mean, ultimately, for education to be empowering and transformative for, for, for people, it needs to be experiential. It needs to be connected to the real world. And whether that means it's work integrated learning and, and students go out into the community and uh, do some work uh, for the local municipality um, and in the process discover how cities work, um, how to connect with community organizations and businesses in order to make change um, and in the process make connections with potential future employers, develop skills that are highly employable see how the learning you take, you've got in the classroom can be applied to the real world so you can transform that world. That's what university education should, should do. It should empower uh, students to be able to answer a question that students increasingly uh, ask, which is, 
how, how can I change the world and make a living while doing so? Those kinds of experiences that, that where students get real world experience or they experience um, ceremony and, and traditional indigenous practices, those kinds of experiences will not just change in the minds of students and, and allow them to grow intellectually, it will change them, their emotional, their spiritual, their, their entire being will, will uh, be transformed. Uh, and they'll be um, much more aware of their relationship with the surrounding world, much more understanding of their relationship with the surrounding world, whether that world be other people, whether that world be organizations, whether that world be plants and animals. Um, uh, it's, it's a, a, a increasingly, it's a vital part of what a university education should be. And it's increasingly a, a, the kind of experiences that our students are demanding um, because they're getting those kinds of experiences more and more in the K-12 system. And so when they arrive at university, they don't expect to just sit passively in a lecture hall. They want something a little more real and interactive uh, and transformative than that. I love that. Um, you know, I, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about Dr. Gregory Cayette. He's an indigenous um, thinker and author. He's a scientist who writes about, you know, the role of education, a particular indigenous education. And he says our relationship to nature is a process of ensoulment. And I love the word because I I hear your 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 passion for creating this connection for your students to see not only the world as it is, but the world as it could be the, to see the nuances of how we co-create those worlds. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges you face in creating this transitional place, this transformative place where students can come and be co-authors of you know, their, their education, co-authors of their learning and create this beautiful experiential practice of being immersed and engaged in reclaiming not only their agency as creators, as cultural producers, as, you know, scientists, uh, but also in imagining new possibilities, you know, that we've I, I always say that the ability to imagine is a positional power. You know, it's hard to imagine when someone says, oh, that's ridiculous, you're a dreamer. That's like the greatest slide that people can give you sometimes. It's like, oh, you're such a dreamer. It used to be a compliment, but in a society of neoliberalism, um, it often means a scuff. So what were the challenges, and how did you overcome those challenges? Uh, well, there's many challenges, I suppose, to begin with, um, it involves it, change, and not everybody likes change. Um, and I happen to be a, a unusual and that I love change, but most people don't. So um, because you have a vision which inspires you doesn't mean that your vision inspires everybody else. And you can't you know, change a university by yourself. Um, uh, even if you're a provost and vice president academic, you really don't have a lot of power. Um, 
the people who change the university are the people who work in it. You know, all of the faculty and staff are, are the people who change the university and um, convincing uh, all of the faculty and staff and administrators who work in the university to follow a, a particular path in one direction or another is a very challenging thing to do. Take just the example of indigenization, uh, being committed to making universities um, places where indigenous students can be successful without having to deny their identities, their values, their customs, their history. Um, you, you can't do that by yourself. Uh, and you will meet resistance. And you'll meet resistance both within the institution and outside of the institution. Um, so how do you break down that resistance? How do you um, win uh, allies in your, your struggle to make those changes? Um, it goes back, I think, to what I was saying before. You can't rationally explain to people that we should indigenize the university because a, B, C, and D. Um, I mean, you might win over a few people doing that, but by and large, that doesn't work by itself. You have to get people in the heart. You have to make people feel committed to the change. And you can't do that through rational argument alone, which is why creating those, those experiences of community members from the local indigenous community being on campus, telling stories, organizing ceremony, providing opportunities for people to witness the stories of residential school survivors, or uh, providing people the opportunity just to witness, you know, the, the, the beauty of Stalo ceremony. Um, th those experiences change people in the heart as well as the head. And once that happens, you're winning over allies. You're winning people who don't need you to tell them that this is a good direction in which to go because they feel it themselves. Um, so it, it, it comes back to, you know, experiential learning. You, you can't just change the university through rational argument. You need to create the, the experiences that will educate enough people uh, to believe in a particular vision. Um, and that's a lot of work. It's not easy. Um, but, and you will, you will make mistakes. And every time you make a mistake, you just have to pick yourself up, apologize to any people you've offended and just keep going. Um, so, uh, it takes a thick skin. It takes determination. Uh, it takes patience, lots of patience. And it also takes allies. You can't do anything on your own and you have to learn how to work with others and um, create strong alliances um, among disparate groups within, within and without uh, a university to make those kinds of, uh, of profound changes. I love that you not only honor the difficulty, the the wonderful gifts that we get from action. I always think that um, action precedes inspiration. You know, when we mm -hmm. actively engage and take however imperfect steps towards, you know, a goal, 
the inspiration will follow. You know, you'll you'll get some. Maybe it wasn't perfect. Maybe you failed the first time, but you keep taking steps, and every time you take steps, new visions of what it could be like, what form your dream could take, will be revealed. And and I think that's the the wonderful gift of perhaps struggle, and at the same time, one of the lessons from pain, right? And I was thinking about um, my mentors and, you know, people who have helped me to grow and stay, stay resilient despite the challenges. And I always think of the poet Mario Benedetti. He was, he was writing in, during the 70s, a time of turmoil during Latin America. There was a lot of wars and um, and he writes a beautiful poem. He calls it Nota Salves. And it really means don't save yourself. Don't play it safe, you know. He says, never think yourself idle. Never stand idle by the side of the road. Never think yourself out of time. Never think yourself out of breath. You know, never sleep without, sleep only to rest. It was this beautiful call to remind us that the only power we have is in our actions, you know, in this moment. And so in the end of the poem, at the end of the poem, he says, and if in spite of all this uh, pleading with you, you choose to be, to play it safe, you choose to think yourself out of time, you choose to think yourself too old, to this, to that, you know, all the excuses we make to not be engaged with life. He says, then don't stay with me. And I, I love that poem because as I think of him, I always, every time I feel depleted, every time I feel lacking or lagging, I think of how many people... Um, keep moving in order to become stronger you know how we keep move this movement is what keeps momentum to not only social movements not only visions of empowerment but also transformative process and to me that's education really is the process you know we're constant learning and learning about what we we didn't know that we didn't know <laughs> so um as we come to the end of our interview what are your um inspiring uh people who inspires you and what keeps you motivated and moving in times where you know the resistance against uh, your vision perhaps was great or what keeps you moving now what keeps you um committed to this work i mean the people i work with i love my colleagues uh i love um the students um it, you know when you experience great learning moments with with students that that's incredibly inspiring uh when you uh work with colleagues who um exemplify what you were just saying colleagues who are action-oriented colleagues who uh, are dreamers, uh, and I love your use of the word dream and dreamer uh, because that, that's the other piece of not only staying uh, resilient but overcoming challenges and, and resistance. You need dreams, you need visions, and whenever I would begin a launch a process of change, some kind of initiative that will involve big big change at my university, I would start with meetings where I would tell people, you know, let's imagine the future and let's not think about all of the obstacles in front of us. Let's not think about the reality in which we live. Let's dream a little. Let's 
do some blue sky thinking first. And then once we've created a vision, a dream, then see, okay, how can we get from all, all of our obstacles in front of us now to anywhere close to that, that dream. So dreaming is, is essential to have not only winning over other people, inspiring others uh, to come on board, but inspiring yourself. If you stop dreaming, if you stop visioning, um, then it's very easy to become tired and jaded and cynical and, uh, and, and just to sort of accept the status quo. Um, but if you dream, um, it doesn't let you accept the status quo. It, 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 it makes you aware of the dissonance between reality as it is and, and what could be. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us today. If there was a big banner across the sky, it, was, it covered the entire sky, and it, said, it stands for the heart of your vision, what would that read? Um, it might read <laughs> transformation. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me today and thank you so much for all the beautiful wisdom of your experience and your vision and your heart for transformative education. It's very inspiring. Thank you again for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share my, my thoughts. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylviarichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. Groove when the groove is you.